Good morning. Let me pray. Father, for the next few minutes, we want to focus solely on you, intently on you, and what you have spoken in the past, what you have preserved for us and for our benefit in your word, and for how you, this morning, through your spirit and through your word, you might want to speak to us. May we have open hearts and ears and eyes and wills this morning. And we commit the rest of our time to you toward that end. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't have to hang around with me very long uh, before you'll hear me say something like, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which do you want first? Because that is the lens through which I view most of life. Everything has a good news component. Everything has a bad news component. I recently heard about two best friends who loved baseball, and they made a pact with each other that whichever one of them died first, uh, he would come back uh, from heaven to let the other one know whether or not there was baseball in heaven. And sure enough, after uh, some time passed, uh, one of the guys died. He went to heaven, and uh, then he sent word back to his friend who was still alive on the earth. He said, I've got good news. I've got bad news. The good news, there is baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're pitching Friday. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, um, I received an email from a good friend uh, chronicling just a very small portion of his day. He wrote the following in his email to me. He said, I had to run home to Elizabeth City yesterday evening, coming back at 10.30 p.m. through the dismal swamp. Bad news, he wrote. Pulled over with a terrible rumbling in my engine. Good news. The terrible rumbling was my right front tire flat, not my engine. Bad news. No flashlight. Good news. Spare tire had air. Bad news. Jack broke and car fell off jack. Good news. I had put the flat rim under the frame of the car as a precaution before the collapse. Bad news. I cussed badly. Good news, a good Samaritan stopped and gave me headlight illumination. Bad news, to cut my finger, cussed again. Good news, Jerry rigged the jack and got everything changed and made it back to Virginia by midnight. We've all been there and we've all done that. We've all uh, gone through days, some of us entire years or seasons, that resembled one long flat tire story. Circumstances were different, situations were different, but... Our life at that point was no less difficult and no less lousy. Sometimes, though, if you're like me, it's hard to discern truly what is bad in life and what is good in life. Sometimes good news comes disguised as bad. And oftentimes bad masquerades as good. This morning, we're going to wrap up our series that we've been in for a couple of weeks called If Jesus is So Great. For the past uh, few weeks, we've been talking about a few of the things that cause us tension between what Jesus actually taught and what we actually experience as we live this life that he's called us to live. We, we've looked at if Jesus is so great, why are some of his followers such jerks? And we, we looked at what he had to say about our relationships and then last week we talked about if Jesus is so great, why does he have so many rules? And we talked about what he has to say about our religion. And this morning we want to ask a final question, and that is, if Jesus is so great, why does my life so often seem lousy? 
More often than not, I'm not very good. I'm not a very good judge of what is really bad in my life and what is really good in my life. I think I am. I think when I'm in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of a situation, or in the midst of some relationship, or in the midst of of, of something that I'm trying to accomplish, or something that doesn't go right, I think that I'm a good judge of, oh, this is bad, and this is good. But the truth about me is I'm not really good at discerning that. And the truth about most of us in this room is we're not very good at discerning that. We think we are in the moment. But oftentimes after the moment has passed, we find that what we thought was bad has turned out to be good. And what we thought was good ended up being bad. So this morning, uh, as we wrap up the series, I want to chat with us about three things that you and I do in our lives that make life lousy for us. These are three things that you and I are responsible for. These are three things that are preventable. They don't have to happen. We are 100% responsible for these three things. But whenever we do them, we bring lousiness into our lives. And then I want to look at three more things, three additional things that we often associate with making our life lousy, that in fact do not make our lives lousy. Three things that we assume are bad, three things that we assume will just derail us, but oftentimes these three things are blessings in disguise. These are three things that we don't have much control over. We don't give them permission to enter our lives, but when they do, they turn out to be a silver lining in our growth process, in us becoming like Jesus. All six of these things start with the letter C, so hopefully it will help us sort of remember them. And the first three, remember, are things that we do that tend to make life really lousy. And the first one of those is uh, simply the word choices. Choices. I think that outside of God Himself, the most powerful power, the most remarkable power in the entire universe is the power of a human being, a man, a woman, a student, a boy, a girl, the power of a human being to choose. God has placed that within every single person. This amazing power of choice that affects not only the here and now, it affects our hereafter, depending on the things we decide, the things that we choose. But as great and remarkable as this power of choice is, it is also that which is most responsible for our lives derailing. It is that which is most responsible for our lives getting off track, taking turns for the worse, and life as we know it, just getting lousy. Getting hard, getting difficult, getting unmanageable, getting confusing, getting out of control. So much, so much of the day in and day out lousiness of your life and my life is simply the result of unwise choices. Choices for which we have to assume 100% of the responsibility. Choices of which, had we chosen a different course of action, would not have resulted in the lousiness that we experience In that moment. In the Gospel of Matthew, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. In in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus actually tells a story about this remarkable potential that human beings have to make choices. Matthew chapter 7, just a couple of verses here. He's in the middle of a passage uh, whereby he is is teaching a sermon, a message, if you will, uh, on the side of a hill to a lot of people. And he comes to this particular point in the sermon, verse 24. And he tells them a story. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine 
and puts them into practice. In other words, everyone who hears what Jesus says is the right way to live and does that. He says that person is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet that house did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, everyone who hears or reads how Jesus said we should live our life but chooses the opposite way, but makes choices not in keeping with what Jesus said is the best way to live. Everyone who does that, he says, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and it beat against that house and that house fell with a great crash. If you were to ask that foolish man, hey foolish man, why in the world Did you build your house on the sand? Hey, foolish man, why in the world did you make the choice or series of choices to construct a house on that which was not unshakable, on that which was not firm? Why in the world, foolish man, did you build your house on the sand? I think you would hear the foolish man say, you know, I really don't know. (laughs) It just sort of happened. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. There was this piece of property and it overlooked the ocean and and it was just, the sun was out. And I had this group of people telling me, hey, you you should build your house right there, right on that spot. Such a good spot, such a picturesque spot. So I don't know, I just made some choices. And I built my house on this little piece of sand. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. He simply made choices, both by design and by default, that led to a particular set of outcomes. Either he didn't think ahead very far, or he thought he was the exception to the rule. Surely he had seen others build their house on sand. Surely he had seen others build their house on foundations that weren't sure and firm. Surely he had seen other houses fall that had been built on the same foundation that he decided to build his house on. He simply made bad choices, unwise choices. Here's the deal. Your life and my life will get lousy 100% of the time when we make unwise, unbiblical choices. That is as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. When you and I attempt to live life by making choices that are contrary or contradictory to what Jesus says in the Bible, when we attempt to live that way, when we make choices, life choices, that do not line up with what Jesus has taught, with what God has said in the Word, our life will get lousy 100% of the time. You may think you're the exception to the rule. You may think you can handle it. You may think you can backpedal out of it once you get to a certain point. But the truth is, when we make unwise choices, we are setting ourselves up for a lousy, lousy season. This is why the smartest question we could ever ask, you hear me say this a lot, is what's the wise thing to do? (laughs) What's the wise thing to do? 
Because so much of the lousiness that we have to deal with day in, day out, year after year in our lives could have been prevented, could have been prevented had we simply made wise choices, biblical choices, rather than unwise, unbiblical choices. Nothing will make our lives lousier, quicker than poor choices. Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon writing here, he equates wisdom with a woman who's standing and shouting into the streets. It says, wisdom shouts. And this is what wisdom shouts. She says, I'm calling out to each of you. Don't miss a word of this. I'm telling you how to live well. I'm telling you how to live at your best. Let instruction and knowledge mean more to you than silver or the finest gold. For wisdom is worth much more than precious jewels or anything else you desire. We think, we think we can make choices that are contrary to what God has said and have it go well with us. And on the surface, it might even look like it's going well for us. But there will come a day when we make the choice to build our house on sand, when that house will fall. And as Jesus said, great will be its fall. This is one of those areas that causes our lives to be lousy, that we have 100% control over. It is preventable. We can make the opposite choices that cause our life to be lousy. Our responsibility. So that's the first C word, the word choices. The second C word, the second way we make our life lousy is really just a continuation of that, and that's the word consequences. The word consequences. The consequences that you and I will experience as a result of our unwise choices are one of the biggest things that make our life lousy. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences, but you cannot choose both. You can choose how you want to act or you can choose the consequences you want to be true. But you and I do not have the luxury of choosing both. If you choose a certain action, the consequences are predetermined. And if you say, well, I want this to be the consequence, then the actions you choose are predetermined because certain actions lead to certain consequences. It's the way God has designed the world. It's the way He's designed things to function. You can say, well, I don't want to be in bondage to debt. That's the consequence. Then you will not have everything the television tells you you need. You will not have everything you want. You will not have the newest or the biggest or the coolest. You say, well, I want, you know, I want to live my life in the context of a Christian family. I want a good Christian spouse. I want Christian kids. If that's what you want, if that's what you desire, there are very few ways to get that. You say, well, I want to grow in Christ. I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman. You will not grow in Christ if you spend all of your available free time watching TV. It's just the way it is. You can think you're the exception to the rule. You won't be. I can think I'm the exception. To, I won't be. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences, but you cannot choose both. It never ceases to amaze me how much we blame God for things that He has nothing to do with. I mean, every one of us have said or thought, God, how could you let this happen to me? God, I thought you were fair. 
Why, God? Why me? Why now? Why this? But like it or not, choices always have consequences, even when they're not immediate or visible. Listen to that. Choices always have consequences, even when the consequences are not immediate or visible. It's the way God has designed the world to function. There is a point after which you make a choice that it becomes impossible to sidestep the consequences. And we're not very good judges as to where that point is. We think we think we are. We think we can make bad choice, bad choice, bad choice, bad choice. I'm going to make one more bad choice and then I'm going to start backpedaling. You make one more bad choice, you have now determined your set of consequences. And no amount of backpedaling will get you out of those consequences. You say, well, I thought God was forgiving. God is forgiving. Forgiveness and consequences are two different beasts. Forgiveness and consequences have no relationship to one another. One never overrides the other because God works through principles. God works in His world in such a way that so much of life is predictable. It's not random. It's not chance. If you ignore the principle of gravity, what will happen? What did you get in science class? Goodness. If you ignore the principle of gravity, what? You're going to fall. If you ignore the principle of law, you're going to get arrested. If you ignore the principle of cause and effect, you are going to deal with consequences. Galatians chapter 6. Paul writing here, he says this. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We think, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can sow toward the sinful nature and yet reap eternal life. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. It's not the way I design things. You have free choice. But the minute you choose, you've also determined your consequences. And no amount of praying, no amount of pleading, no amount of repenting makes your consequences go away. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences. You cannot choose both. You remember the story of David, King David, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. David had lived an unbelievably godly life. The Bible says about David, he was a man after God's own heart. He had one victory after another. He made one right choice after another. It was an unbelievable run for decades. And then David began to make some choices that weren't very wise. The Bible says when he should have been out at war with his armies, he was instead walking around on top of his, the roof of his palace and he saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba and he decided, hey, I want that woman. And so he calls for her. They have an affair. She conceives a child. And in order to cover up all of his bad choices up to that point, he has her husband killed, Uriah. He murders him, has him murdered. And then Nathan, who was the prophet in that day, came to David, told him this story about a little sheep and about a family and about the sheep being a, the, the pet of the family and someone taking the sheep and putting the sheep to death. And, and, and in so telling this story, David realizes what he's done. And he repents. 
You know, repentance is not saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is making a 180-degree turn and walking in the other direction. David makes a 180-degree turn. He walks in the other direction. He is, he is contrite. He confesses. He repents. He, he is so... He, he, he does everything he can to show God he is sorry. And he still has to endure the consequences of his actions. Bathsheba gives birth to a baby and God takes the baby. And from that point, sexual sin and violence never leave David's family. At that point, just before he made that series, those series of, of choices, at that point, Israel was at its peak. From that point on, Israel never attained the power and prestige and influence that it had attained up to that point. Just because we repent, God doesn't take consequences away. Because that's the way He's designed everything to work. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences, but you cannot choose both. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. It says, Can you scoop fire into your lap without burning your clothes? Can you walk on hot coals without scorching your feet? The answer is no, of course. Because when we choose to do certain things, when we make certain choices, we've predetermined the consequences. That's the second thing that is preventable, that makes our life lousy. There's a third C word that we are 100% responsible for that makes our life lousy. And this one's counterintuitive. This is one that we don't understand how in the world this can make our life lousy because this is the exact opposite of lousy. And this C word is the C word Comfort. He said, well, wait, I pursue comfort. Comfort's a good thing. I want comfort. I want plenty. I want ease. I want calm in my life. How can that be bad? How can comfort and ease and plenty and calm make my life complicated and hard and lousy? Our thinking is if we can just be comfortable, then our life will be the opposite of lousy. Our life will be good. Comfort looks different for each one of us. Maybe for you, comfort's more money. Maybe for you, comfort's a better job or, or a bigger house or more toys or less stress. Maybe for some of you, it's a certain guy or a certain girl. Maybe comfort for you is a lack of problems or lack of obstacles or lack of setbacks. Maybe, maybe it's a feeling or it's an emotion or it's a relationship. Maybe for you, comfort is just more security. Maybe for you, comfort is escape. But here's the deal. You and I will rarely, if ever, grow during seasons of comfort. We will rarely, if ever, grow and become the person God intends for us to become when everything is going good, when we have everything that we need, when life is easy, when skies are calm, when there's no adversity, no suffering, no problems, no trials coming our way, very rarely will we grow in Christ in that circumstance. We think we will. We think we can. We think we'll be grateful to God when everything's going good. We think, we think we'll keep our focus on Him. We think, we really do believe that if we can just be comfortable, if life can just be the opposite of lousy, that that would just be about the best thing 
that could ever happen to us, and we will be so... It'll help me love God more if my life can just be smooth. But it never works out that way. Comfort is one of the biggest things, according to Scripture, that derails us from God and derails us from His perspective. There's a passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, that is one of the most haunting passages, I think, in the Bible. The Bible says in Hosea chapter 13, beginning in the fourth verse, God speaking here, He says, But I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the desert, God tells Israel. I cared for you in the land of burning heat. And then God says this. When I fed them, they became satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. And when they became proud, they forgot about me. You know how many times that scenario plays itself out in Scripture? You know how many times that scenario plays itself out in my life, in your life? When life gets easy, we become satisfied. When we become satisfied, we become proud. When we become proud, we forget God. We don't want to. We don't think we will on this side of the comfort. We think we can handle it. But hardly any of us can grow in times of comfort. We grow when things are hard, not when things are good. And so this is one of those things that we literally bring on ourselves because we pursue it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should go out and, 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 and pursue you know, grief and heartache. You know, you see the bus coming, don't step out in front of it, okay? You know, go back to the choice thing. But a lot of, a lot of what happens to us is the result of us trying to make life easy and not lousy. And that almost never works out in our favor. So that's three ways that we make our own lives lousy that are wholly, completely preventable. Now I want to look at three things that we have very little to do with that when, on the surface, when we look at these things in our lives, it looks like, wow, our life is becoming really lousy. But these are three things that God uses to actually grow us, to actually help us as we live this life that He's called us to live. The first of these things, I'm just going to call circumstances. Okay, now circumstances, I'm not talking about circumstances that are the result of our choices. I'm talking about circumstances that happen to you and me that on the surface just look random. On the surface look haphazard and arbitrary, accidental, if you will. I'll never forget when uh, Sean Catherine, our daughter, was um, six years old. We are sitting at this dinner table one night. My truck had sprung a leak in the gas tank, and so I'd put, you know, fill up the gas tank with uh, gas and you know by the end of the day I'd have like a quarter of a tank and I couldn't figure it out and so then I figured out hey I'll bet that big puddle of stuff underneath my truck might be gas and uh, and so I took my truck to the mechanic and uh, he was going to have it for a couple of days while he you know changed the gas tank out and whatnot and so we're sitting at the dinner table and I told Cindy hey I dropped the truck off at so-and-so's he's going to take a look at it and whatnot and so Sean Catherine six years old is sitting there and I'll never forget that she's sitting there and and, and she gets this real concerned look on her face as Cindy and I are talking, and then she says, Dad, 
you mean you don't have your truck? I said, no, sweetheart. She goes, you mean we're down to only one vehicle? I said, yes. She goes, how are we going to go shopping? And she just... In her life, this was a circumstance that was about the worst thing that could ever happen to her. I thought it was the worst thing that happened to her. She's 13 now. Whew, it gets worse, trust me. She thought this was the worst thing that could ever happen. But as a parent, you and I know, this wasn't the worst. This was like a gift from God. We saved money. You know? So much of what happens to us So much of the things that come our way, so much of what we experience, so much of what we have to deal with are simply circumstances which result from living in a sinful, fallen world. It's just just the way things are, if you will. The Bible teaches that nothing happens to you or me that God does not permit. Nothing can happen to you or me that does not first pass through the permissive filter of our loving Heavenly Father. That doesn't mean He causes everything. It doesn't mean He sends everything your way. It means that there is nothing that you and I have to ever experience this side of heaven that hasn't first gone through the filter of His love and His grace and His wisdom and His knowledge and His desire and His plan for us. And we so often look at circumstantial things that happen to us and we think, wow, this came out of the blue. This is the hardest thing I've ever dealt with. This is making my life so lousy. We need to remember, nothing that happens to us catches God off guard. Nothing that comes our way that we have to deal with that seemingly makes our life lousy surprises God. It has first come through His permissive hand. Jesus said in John 16, 33, He says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. More and more people these days, more and more churches these days, are giving us the picture that following Jesus is some kind of fun-packed adventure, a thrill a minute that guarantees you'll never be sick and that guarantees you'll always have money and always have enough, that guarantees a pain-free, problem-free, pressure-free life. And that is so contrary to what God has said in His Word. It's what J.I. Packer calls hot tub religion. In one of his books, he says, the hot tub experience is sensuous. It's relaxing and floppy and laid back, not in any way demanding, whether intellectually or otherwise, but very, very nice even to the point of being great fun. Many today, he writes, want Christianity to be like that. And they labor to make it so. The ultimate step, of course, would be to clear church auditoriums of seats, install hot tubs in their place, then never have any attendance problems. You think about all the people who profess the name of Jesus who teach that life should be easy, who teach that life should be this calm No pressure, no pain, no problems. If you ever turn on the TV on a Sunday morning, you watch some of these people on TV. Biggest church in our country. You listen to these people teach. What they teach is not the Word of God. They're trying to make Christianity some caricature that is pleasurable and fun. 
Christianity and following Jesus is joyful. It is peaceful. We can live with contentment. But that doesn't mean a life divorced from circumstances of living in a world that is ridden with sin. The Bible teaches that problems are inevitable. James writes in James chapter 1, He says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Count it joy whenever you face trials. The word face literally means fall into trials. It's the same word used in the story of the Good Samaritan where it says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. There is no way you and I can live life that is problem-free. There's no way. And if that's your goal, you will be sorely disappointed and you will miss God's purpose for you. Because He never intended for life to be without problem. We live in a sinful, fallen world. We are sinful, fallen people. Life will have its share of circumstances that are just hard. James says, he says, he says, you will will experience circumstances, problems of many kinds. That little phrase, many kinds, is the same word we get our word polka dot from. You ever look at something that's polka dot? I mean, just dots everywhere. James is saying, your life and my life will resemble polka dots with circumstances and problems and trials and pain and situations that we don't want just splattered all over the fabric of our lives. And that's not anything we can really do something about. Yet it's one of the things that God uses to grow us when we persevere in the midst of those circumstances. Real quick, a second C word that while we do sometimes have something to do with, oftentimes we don't, and that's the word conflict. I mean, sometimes we're the instigator, but we like to think of ourselves as not the instigator, and oftentimes we're not. But conflict is one of those things that always we assume is bad. We always assume it's causing our life to be so lousy. No one welcomes conflict with another person. I don't listen to a lot of what Dan Rather says, but he said something one time I thought that was very wise. He said, a tough lesson in life that one has to learn is that not everybody wishes you well. That's just truth. You don't have to live very long to experience that. Relational conflict is as inevitable as unwelcome circumstances. But friends, not every battle is Armageddon. And not every person who opposes you is the Antichrist. And we do ourselves and them a great disservice when we, assert that, when we assume that any conflict with another person is like this big, big deal, and they're of the devil. Sometimes it's not that way. When someone, when someone hurts you, when someone offends you, when someone initiates conflict with you, first and foremost, ask yourself the question, is this hurt intentional? Or not. Because a lot of times, it's not. Not every hurt or conflict is an attack on you or me. A lot of times, conflict is simply the result of misunderstanding or insufficient information or jumping to conclusions or assuming the worst about a person instead of assuming the best. 
I think one of the greatest gifts God can give you and me is, a, is the gift of a thick skin. Don't assume that the world's against you. There are people that are against you, but don't assume that every bit of relational conflict you experience is some battle that you have to go fight. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 4. He says this. Actually, it's Romans chapter 14. No, it's Romans chapter 12. I'm just trying to confuse me. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, he writes. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Conflict is one of those things that we assume is going to make our life lousy. But how you and I respond to conflict has the potential to actually grow us in Christ. When we speak truth and love to another person, it actually has the potential to grow that relationship. Not make it worse. I just heard someone say this weekend, people may love Jesus, but they may not like you. That's okay. Count yes votes and move on. (laughs) That's wisdom right there. That's just good stuff. Third thing real quick, and that is correction. Correction. And again, we're semi-responsible for this because of the choices that we make. When we disobey God, when when we walk away from Him, when we choose a path that is contrary or contradictory to what He has said in the Bible is the way we should live life, we can fully expect our Heavenly Father to discipline us, to correct us, all with the purpose of bringing us to repentance, of bringing us back to obedience. Again, Paul says this about the Scriptures in 2 Timothy. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you and I make certain choices that are contrary or contradictory to what God has said is the best, wisest way to live, He will correct us. He will discipline us, just as a good earthly father or earthly mother will discipline a son or a daughter who disobeys. So God will discipline us. You know, throughout the Old and New Testaments, there is a principle which you can count on as sure as the sun rises, and that is obedience always brings blessing and disobedience always brings discipline. Obedience will always bring blessing in your life. You may not be able to to, to define clearly what that looks like. It may not always even be material. But when you and I live a life that is obedient to what God has taught us in His Word, it will go well with us. 
And when we choose to live in disobedience, when we choose to live contrary and contradictory to what Jesus has taught us is the wisest way to live, sooner or later, God will correct us. We may think we're getting away with something. We may think that we're pulling the wool over his eyes. We may think that we've got it under control. But sooner or later, God will bring us back. And that is almost always a painful process. I was never disciplined by my dad in a way that was not painful. Even when it didn't involve a switch or a belt. Even when it was just his words. It was always a painful process. Because I love my dad. The reality is for you and I, when we walk away, when we choose opposite from what God has said, we are welcoming His correction into our life. Last verse we'll look at and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Author of Hebrews writes, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Here's the word of encouragement. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have had all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? For our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Those are three things that we really don't bring on ourselves 100%. Circumstances, conflict, correction. That on the surface look like it's making life really, really lousy. But those are three things that God often uses in our life to grow us into the people that He wants us to be. The deal is, when life is going good, our temptation is to take Jesus and to put Him on a shelf. Our temptation is to put Him in the back seat while we drive the car. When life is smooth sailing, our temptation is to just to sort of forget about God. Not hate God, just forget about Him. But the minute life gets hard, the second things take a turn for the worse, suddenly we're wondering, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Why did Jesus let this happen? Why is Jesus not stepping in? Why is Jesus not changing my circumstances? If Jesus is so great, why is my life so lousy? Friends, Jesus is great whether your life is lousy or not. Jesus is great whether our life looks good or looks bad. Jesus is great whether our life is easy or whether our life is hard. Sometimes life does get lousy because of things we do. And sometimes life seems lousy, but it's really not. So I just want to encourage you this morning. Start viewing the lousiness in your life through the same lens that God views it through. 
I think it will change everything. If Jesus is so great, why is my life so lousy? Your life is probably not as lousy as you think it is. And if it is, it's probably because of your own doing. (laughs) You have the potential to change that in the choices you make. If you would, please go ahead and stand with me. Just remind you, <clears throat> next Sunday we start a new series called Baggage. I hope that uh, hope you'll be here. I hope you'll invite someone to be with you. We're going to talk about the baggage of our self-image and the baggage of regret and the baggage of dad issues and the baggage of forgiveness. So I hope you'll join us for the uh, month of October for that. Let's pray. Father, again, uh, we thank you for the time that we had together. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his influence. We thank you for his truth. We thank you for his friendship. We thank you for his forgiveness. We thank you for his leadership in our lives. We thank you for what he has taught us. We thank you for the example that he set. We thank you that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that he walks with us through all of life. We thank you that he has provided a way to you, our Heavenly Father. And now may we go from this room now encouraged to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus and to live our life according to what He's taught us. And we pray and ask this in His name. Amen. Have a great afternoon.